You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, I chat with K.O. Riordan, VP of Product, Music, and Platforms at Shazam. She talks about the state of predictive analytics and how Shazam is able to predict the success of a song, often in the first few hours after its release. We also talk about the Internet of Things and how products like the Apple Watch affect Shazam's product life cycles, as well as the behaviors of its users. In our second segment, I chat with Francine Bennett, CEO and co-founder of Macedon C, about unintentional uses of data for evil and how data scientists can ensure their work stays on the data for good side of that line. She also talks about tools, techniques, and trends she's seeing in the big data space. First, here's Kate. Enjoy the show. How would you describe the current state of predictive analytics and recommendations, and how are you approaching those technologies at Shazam? So at at Shazam, we really like to take advantage of our our massive data sets. So we have more than 100 million monthly active users, uh, and people Shazam more than 20 million times a day, and they're Shazamming all over the world. Um, And why that's interesting from a data perspective is when someone takes their phone out of their pocket, unlocks it, finds the Shazam app and hits hits the big blue button, they're not just saying, I want to know the name of this song. They're saying, I like this song sufficiently to do that. And, you know, there's there's an amount of effort there that implies some level of liking. And so that's really interesting because you combine that really interesting intention of the on the part of the user, plus the massive data set, you can cut that in lots and lots of different ways. Um, and we use it for lots of different things. At, at the most basic level, we're looking at what songs are going to be popular. Um, and we can predict um, with a relative amount of accuracy what will hit the top 100 billboard chart 33 days out, roughly. Um, and we can look at that in lots of different territories as well. But we can also look and see in the first few hours of a track whether a, a big track is going to go on to be successful. We can look at which particular part of the track is encouraging people to Shazam and what makes a popular hit. We know that, for example, for a big pop hit, you've got about 10 seconds to convince somebody to find the Shazam app and press that button. So there's lots of different ways that we can look at that data going right into the details of a particular song or zooming out worldwide or looking in different territories just due to that big worldwide and very, very engaged audience. And you note in a talk that you take that usage data to create new product opportunities. What kinds of products are you creating and what kinds of ideas do you have for future products? So the the way I think about it is that we can help people solve the problem that the the paradox of all the choice that you get in digital music um, make it's never been as hard, I think, to find some stuff that you are really going to like. So again, we use that understanding about how uh, what people mean when they hit that button and use that data to give back to our customers to help them find music that they might like. Um, the from a really basic level, it just means charts, really. So you know, charts for the worldwide charts for different territories, and um, you know, we cut the data in different ways and look into territories, and we um, send them to our customers, and they react really positively to that. But then, it, then we can cut that data by different genre uh, or cut it in different ways so that we can present it back to the customer in a way that will help them find new music that they're going to love. So what kinds of challenges do you face in the product lifecycle and how, if at all, is the growing ubiquity of the Internet of Things affecting your, your approach and your process? So I think it's the same for a lot of companies, which is of all the many brilliant things that you could do, what are the right ones to do? And that's the problem that everybody faces. And it's a lovely problem to have. Um, uh, you know, there are, you know, we, we're forever coming up with fantastic ideas. And the trick is to, to, to work out 
which ones have the most potential and then working out how you can test whether they have potential so that you can then decide whether you want to go in, into that deeper. Um, yeah, and, the, and then, you know, it, Shazam is incredibly popular on iOS and Android and we have a, a Windows app and we're also on the web. So there's lots of different platforms that you have to make it on. And then, you know, the launch of the Apple Watch in the last few weeks means that you know, we had to work out what that meant for Shazam. And it's not just a case of taking your big old app and shrinking it down to the size of a watch. You have to think about what's the use case, how we can make it really, really simple for people to use, but but encourage and, uh, and, and encourage our iOS users to use it more often because it's it's on on your on a very personal space on your wrist, really, really convenient. And and that's what we we're thinking about when we we're making making that app. Not and the challenge is making an app for a device you've never seen, you know, right at the beginning when you don't know what those things look like, you're trying to work out what's the best way to do it. And you know, we worked incredibly hard to make it as um, as useful and as simple as possible for that very, very simple use case. And I'm curious to know um, how most users use Shazam. Like, what are they doing when they use Shazam? And are you seeing that behavior change at all? And, and why, if, if you are? It's, it's, a, it's a really good question. It, you know, um, there are different parts of it. So where people use Shazam, they use it um, largely in the home, but they also use it out and about in clubs and in bars. They use it uh, in transport. They use it, uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, Shazamming activity happens in cars as well, ideally by passengers. Um, and, uh, um, but, and there are two sort of major use cases, particularly in the music space, which is uh, I've heard this song. I want to know what it is. Hit the button, get a result. Um, and then there is the other use case where you come back and look at your Shazams later on. And then we find that the people who come back and look at it, use, use it later on, behave in a very different way. They're much more likely to watch a video, to buy the track, to connect it to a streaming service, to look at the lyrics. There's a kind of really fast hit button result go type use case. And then there is the now I'm in an exploratory mode. The, the thing that we're focusing on a lot is how we get people to use the app outside the moment they've heard a song that they like, but they don't know the name of. Um, so, you know, we've, uh, we have a news feed in our app now that uses the data that we know about what music people like uh, to bring them stories about those artists and or tell them when an album's been released or, uh, or tell them when there's a new video that's dropped by that artist. And that is working really well for us. And people are, they're using Shazam as a browsing experience and a discovery experience that's not completely connected to that very fast, I want to, I want to know the name of this track. Oh, that's interesting. And so shifting gears just a little bit, you went from working at the BBC to working at Shazam. What was that experience like? And, and how do the different companies compare in terms of the challenges you face and the technologies you use to, to solve those problems? So, so at the BBC, I was working on, uh, at the end of my career at the BBC, I was working on the Olympics. So that was creating a digital experience for the 2012 Olympic Games on tablet, mobile, connected television and, and on the desktop. It was a huge project, took you know, two and a half years, uh, employing you know, hundreds of people in order to create a fantastic benchmark experience. It was an amazing opportunity um, uh, and uh, I learned so much during the process of that in terms of working out what the right thing is to do, what, what the right things were to build, what uh, what emotions we'd be tapping into at the time of the games. And it was a huge privilege and very, very exciting thing to work on. Um, uh, and with a hugely concentrated 17 days of games right at the end where everything had to work perfectly and spotlessly uh, for for the duration. So, um, uh, and it was for a large company, you know, the BBC is a big company and, you know, and Shazam is by comparison a small company. Um, so there are there are lots of differences there just in terms of, you know, largely really around stakeholder management, how you get something done in a big corporation is very different to how you get something done in a small company. But what I've found really interesting 
since joining Shazam is sort of a year and a half ago, is really how much of it is the same. Because you're facing the same problems. It's, you know, it is, how do you make a product that people are going to love and use? Um, and that, that doesn't change. Customers don't change. They're still human beings who use products in different ways. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and also working with the team to get people to do things is the same whether it's a big company or a small company. So it was really gratifying for me to see that all the skills that I've learned at the sort of the cold face of the Olympics in 2012 are eminently transferable to working in a, in a technology-based uh, startup, elderly startup at 13 years, but a startup nonetheless. Um, yeah, the, the, so those same skills are really helping me here at Shazam as well. Nice. And so I want to close our conversation today with kind of a broad question. What people and projects are you following? What are you finding personally intriguing these days? Um, so there's, there's, there's two levels to that. There is um, you know, the music space, which I work at the moment, which is um, around uh, how solving that particular problem of millions, millions of tracks to listen to, but which one should I engage with? You know, there, there are interesting companies who are looking at data as well as Shazam. There's a, a startup from Ireland called Soundwave who's doing very interesting stuff around what music people are actually listening to. So looking at how other people use data to solve that particular problem. I don't think anyone has solved it in its entirety. And, and it's interesting to watch people solving it in different ways um, and, and how that's coming together to help people find great music. On a much more personal level, I, what I'm finding interesting is the technology's ability to change your behavior. So, you know, two or three years ago, all the buses in London all became connected and you could tell when a bus was going to arrive at your bus stop. And it was interesting to me how it changed my behavior. It went from just checking whether there was a bus coming uh, so I could run from my house to the bus stop and, and get on a bus to all of a sudden becoming much lazier and waiting for that bus to arrive and go, well, I'm not going to leave the house for 11 minutes because it's not going to be there um, and finding myself becoming lazier. Then, you know, getting myself a Fitbit uh, wristband counting how many steps and all of a sudden my behaviors changed completely i don't look at the bus timetable anymore because i'm desperate to get my steps up um, and, and achieve my target in the course of the day and you know an old cynic being in the business for a long time i find it interesting that it can change my behavior but also how it changes people's behavior in in both negative and positive ways um, and then again you know as health apps and health uh, and you know all these sorts of devices become much more ubiquitous is again the data that those companies have on people's behavior and how it changes from what they say they do to what they're actually doing is also really, really fascinating sort of data I'd love to get my hands on. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Welcome. You can reach Kate through her Twitter handle, at Kate O'Riordan. That's C-A-I-T-O-R-I-O-R-D-A-N. Now, here's Francine Bennett. You have a talk titled, Using Data for Evil. So without naming names, what are some examples of data gone awry that you've seen? So we pulled out uh, a couple of pretty famous examples actually from the past year in the talk. And there, there were some really interesting ones. Uh, so for example, New York uh, released a taxi cab data set at uh, the end of 2013. You might have heard about it. Um, so they released a data set of every taxi journey that happened uh, in the city, start point, end point, uh, what time it happened at and what the fare was. Um, that sounded fairly innocuous, and obviously the, the authority that released it felt it was okay to release. 
Um, but there were then lots of people showed great examples of how you could de-anonymize that and actually figure out um, all sorts of uh, much more controversial things. So like if you had a photograph of a ta- uh, celebrity getting into a taxi cab, you could cross-match that to the timestamp and figure out where they went in their cab. That's maybe interesting if you were trying to stalk them or trying to stalk some other person. Right. Um, they tried doing things like finding strip clubs and saying, well, where when taxi cabs pick people up from outside strip clubs at 3 a.m., where do they go to? And that's probably their home addresses. So there are all sorts of accidental things you can do in, in just in releasing data, not even analyzing it that closely. Um, so our talk was really about the various ways in which things can go awry and just picking up some recent examples to make it real. Right. And so to be fair, situations like that are largely unintentional. The data yeah. scientists didn't set out to to cause these, these wreaks no, of havoc. Not. Um, so what kind of advice would you give data scientists to help them keep their work on the data for good side of that yeah. line? I, th- I think there's a couple things, actually. Um, th- there's first thinking about things like anonymization. Um, so anonymization is just a lot harder than you might expect, um, as, as shown by that taxicab data set. Uh, but then there are additional things about thinking about the impact of what you do and um, how it may be used, interpreted or misinterpreted. So um, one of the other examples that we talked about is um, Bayesian statistics. So there's this odd phenomenon of, of Bayesian stats where even if you have a very accurate test for some rare event, um, however good the test, if the event is extremely rare, the false positives will be very high effectively. Um, so there's this example of um, te- Bayesian terrorists. You can, you can look it up. So there's a few people who have worked out the numbers where because terrorists are presumably very rare, however accurate your test, your stats test is never going to be uh, pick up all the right guys. Or even if it does pick up all the right guys, it will also pick up thousands upon thousands of innocent people. And that's something that only makes sense if you understand the stats. So the, the data scientist has the responsibility to explain that those nuances when they're doing modeling and when they're presenting those models to decision makers who then in turn have a lot of influence over people's lives. So it's really just about using your influence in a positive way, but also making sure that you help other people to understand how your work works. Right, right. Uh, at Mastodon C, where mm-hmm. you work, you work with a, a variety of companies and groups. What are some of yeah. the interesting applications of data that you've seen recently? So we've recently been getting very into city and, and physical environment data, so things about buildings or transport or, and so forth in, in the real world, <laughs> real world yeah. such as it is. Um, and th- those applications are particularly interesting, I think, because they can really change the environments that people are in or, or really um, optimize the physical world um, in a way that's not always possible online. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work with... Uh, a large engineering firm just and with their customers looking at ways of using data to make the physical environment smarter and, and more more pleasant hopefully for, for the people in it those, those are really exciting and it's obviously much more possible now because of the explosion of cheap sensors and, and iot technologies so yeah interesting time in, in in that side of data i think oh it is definitely what are some examples of some things you've implemented in that area so one simple example is uh, we run a tracking system for uh, as an organization called Energy Savings Trust who want to understand how buildings work. Um, so they, they're tasked with helping to make, meet the UK's carbon savings targets. One of the blockers to that is understanding how domestic buildings can be made more energy efficient. So we know, for example, insulation make them more energy efficient, better boilers, various things you can do. Um, but it's much harder to know how that actually plays out in real weather conditions with real people living in the house. Um, so for example, if you had a drafty house and it became insulated, 
the physics model tells us that you save a bunch of energy. Um, the reality tells us that people in a cold house, which suddenly becomes well insulated, will say, fantastic, I can turn up the thermostat. I've now got a warm house. So we run a, a, a system which tracks lots of different test buildings for EST to try and say, how, how do real changes play out in real environments with real people and using detailed data, so detailed time series of data to, to really get into the nuance of that, which in turn will then help them make decisions which can scale up to the whole country better. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And so what kinds of trends are you seeing in the data space? So in terms of tools, types of companies gathering data, types of data being gathered, anything, anything interesting? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting at the moment. And some things that were initially, I, I think, more of a big deal are, are now commoditized, so treated as business as usual. So things like, um, I think use, the use of cloud and the use of things like Hadoop are, are pretty normal now um, among enterprises and startups. So I find that now nowadays we have to make fewer arguments for why, why we would do that, whatever type of client we're working with. And the same with open source, actually, that's increasingly accepted among all constituencies, not just the, the crazy tech people, as, as a good and normal thing to do. Um, so then the frontiers become about things like speed. So you know, things like Spark are very interesting and in increasingly two-speed two uh, analysis architectures. So you've got batch analysis, but also some kind of real-time learning layer is, is, is an intriguing structure and is, is the tools increasingly support implementing that well. Um, visualization is getting really nice, and particularly the D3 libraries and all the offshoots of that um, let you do some beautiful things quite quickly. Um, so yeah, there's, there's still a continuing explosion of, of fun and useful tools. So yeah, it's fun times. I, in, within our team, we've, we've had to institute a rule that we're only allowed to use one new technology on each project, just because there's so many toys that we could play with. We have to say, no, let's <laughs> slow no, down a bit, yourself. let things consolidate a little before we you know, go on to the next thing. Right, right. And so to close our conversation, I uh -huh. want to put out a broad question. What people and projects are you following? What are you finding personally exciting these days? Oh, that's a good question. Um, th so I'm involved in the data kind movement. Um, so there's a US data kind, there's a U UK data kind, I'm a trustee. That throws up lots of interesting projects um, because that's lots of data scientists doing pro bono work with charities. So the charity impacts are uh, really interesting. So, for example, we did some recent text mining with a young people's charity and found lots of interesting patterns there. But also the way that that pushes data scientists from different industries and different teams to mix professionally and to, to work together. So you, that's that's always interesting to me to follow what comes out of those. Um, and then on a, on a more technical bent, I guess, I mean, Spark is, it's a bit of a cliche, but that's that's the technical project that's, that seems to be pushing in interesting directions at the moment. And Spark Streaming and ML Lib on top of that look, look like they're gonna do really interesting things. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for talking with me. Cool, thank you. Francine can be reached through her Twitter handle, at FHR. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>